And as they're going, you can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. We'll be in verses 5 through 9. Genesis 6, 5 through 9. All right, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dearly Father, as we come before you, we are reminded again over and over how desperately we need you. As the songs reminded us again that our desire and our heart's cry should be to be holy, to be like you. So, dearly Father, help us. We desperately need it. The world around us is calling us to go after absolutely worthless things, but your word reminds us what really matters. So, dearly Father, as we open your word today, may we be even renewed even more to understand what is important, how to understand the the height and the breadth of what you have for us. Guide us now. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. If you watch the news, which is interesting, in my own lifetime, the news went from a time that was either at, it was at 5 o'clock or it was at 6 o'clock in the evening, and now all of a sudden news is 24-hour cycle where you can watch news all the time where they're literally making up news because there's really nothing that exciting, and so they have breaking news, and you're like, that's not really breaking at all. You just needed something to put on the little ticker at the bottom, but as you watch the world around us, it is clear as cycle of news happens after cycle of news that it seems that even more evil is taking place. It seems that you go and boy, things seem to be spinning towards more and more evil, more and more disaster that's happening. You look at even things that have been voted on even this last week in the elections and you go, boy, it seems as if we are choosing evil over good over and over and over again. We live in a world where literally the Bible has condemned sinful acts and the people are calling it, no, it's just your choice. Or this is just the way I've been made, and God's Word speaks directly against that. And we see man trying everything he can do. It sadly seems to be bringing even more sin and destruction. It seems that man is, if you want to even use the word hellbound, on destroying himself. And the things that should be used for the betterment of society seem to be turned and only bringing about more heartache and sorrow. And if we're not careful, we can sit here and be shaken to the core and just say, has this ever happened before? You know, are things really, you know, as bad? And I'm going to hopefully, as we get through this, these several verses here, you'll see that this is not the first time this ever happened. So let's read Genesis 6, 5 through 9. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. What we're going to look at here first, I'm going to look at point number one is God saw it all, and we see that in verse 5. Look at verse 5 there, and the first three words say, The Lord saw. The Lord saw. God saw it all. Nothing escapes the eye of God. God is not here seeing something that He had not seen before, though. I want to make sure we're clear on this. It is not as if God is roaming the earth and He's like, Oh, I see that over there, and I see this, as if He had never seen it before. What we're going to see here shortly is that God is constantly aware of what is going on. Uh, there's this, the same term there, 
the, the idea of Saul is actually seen in Genesis 30, verse 1, where it literally says, Rachel saw she bore no children to Jacob. This is not something that Rachel all of a sudden figured out one day. This is a constant awareness. She saw time after time after time again, everybody was having kids but me. She saw that she was barren. This is a constant awareness. It was, a, it was like in her front burner here, this issue that is going on. And so when we see that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, this is not something he did not already know. This is him saying, I see what you are doing. God knew it all. And notice what he saw. He saw the actions of man. Notice, the wickedness of man was great on the earth. The actions man was doing. Again, nothing man does is hidden from God. We want to be clear on this because many times we think, that, well, we close the door or we close the blind or this, it's dark out so this, no one's going to see what I'm doing. No matter what is done behind closed doors, God sees. Turn with me to Hebrews 4.13. It's interesting here, and the writer of Hebrews puts this as, as basically as plain as you can. Hebrews chapter 4. I'll get there in a second. I keep passing it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. says that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. Everything that happens, we see this here, even as Moses is writing this through the inspiration of God, that he is saying God sees it all. Everything that is going on is literally laid bare before God. And what does he see? What are the things going on? We talked about this last week in verses 1 through 4. What he is seeing is that the actions of man are the things that are wicked. And we say, well, what are the actions of man? Well, last week we talked about that the line of faith was intermarrying with the line of unbelief. And out of these marriages was coming unbelief. And so what we're seeing is even more wickedness. And what you're going to remember is this is something that we have to be very clear on. Ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God, man left to his own will not be good. Man left to his own will do evil. You leave man to his own without any interaction with God and it. Man is bent and we would say totally depraved and will do what is wrong. Uh, one of the famous literature uh, books on this, what I've mentioned here multiple times, is The Lord of the Flies. The concept of when, when man is left on his own, on this island by his own, what happens? Not good, but evil. And what do we see? Not only that, is these men of great strength were using their strength not to do good, but to bring about even more evil over and over again. Not only does God see the actions, but notice it goes even further. Just to let you know that everything is laid bare. He says, "...in every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually." Now we will dive into this more next week, but I want to just, let's just say what the text says. Not only are the actions seen by God, but literally down to the heart of man is seen. The heart the Bible will use over and over again is the root or the place where thoughts come from. The idea of where roots of the, these ideas, these thoughts spring from, come from the heart. And so, not only do we see what God saw, but we see why God is seeing it. Because out of man is coming only evil thoughts continually. That is literally why we need in our world around us those to enforce laws because guess what man will not do on their own? Enforce the law. I mean, we view everything in our world as suggestions, don't we? 
Like we view the idea, we come up to a corner and it says 35 miles an hour. We take that as a suggestion when we're going 65. And what do we find out real quick? The laws of physics and inertia and everything else teach you that that is 35 miles an hour. We'll get you around there safely. But mankind, without that, without law enforcers, without law given to us by God, man will not become a law of good to his own. He will only become a law of evil. But I want to pause here for a moment, because sometimes, if we're not careful, we can only view God's all-seeing ability to see everything we do down to the very core of our being as a negative thing. As in, like, now this is the, the concept where this is what people sometimes will use in arguments, that this is how we control people, that God's going to see everything. Well, God's word uses, you will give an account for your actions, but also on the positive thing, if he sees it all and knows it all, what about times in the world we live in where we cry out, where is the justice? The all-seeing God knows what? What is just. He also, his all-knowing, this is why God is the only just God, because he knows it all. When God makes a judgment on mankind, he not only knows the action, he knows down to the very heart. We look at our own judicial system and all we can base upon is actions, but God in His perfect judgment will one day judge you not just only on your actions, but down to the very heart. Back into the text here. It's interesting here. It says, And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. If you remember just a couple of months ago, after God was done creating the world in Genesis 1.31, it says that God saw something there too. And as God creates the world, he steps back and it says, and God saw that it was very good. Now God's going to see again here, and God's going to see what? Because of sin, the fall of mankind, in Genesis chapter 3, God's going to look at the world and see wickedness. At one time he looked and saw what was good, but because of the rebellious heart of man, we're going to see the, what wickedness does. It's interesting, though, too, though, I think we need to pause, and sometimes we quickly move on to this, and we want to get into the flood, the destruction that is coming, but I think sometimes we forget that if we were to be back living at that time period, in that day and age, man, what they were doing, everyone at, in the earth at that time, except for Noah's family, would have been saying everything they're doing is good, because they would have kept on doing it, because they're going, this is right, but what is God going to say? That is wrong, all right? And what the world we live in even today is calling what is wrong right and what is right wrong. And they say we're doing what is right and we're just going to keep on doing what is right. But God's looking and saying, no, that is evil. That is wrong because of the standard what God has set. And so we have to ask ourselves, then God, as he sees the wickedness of man and every intention of the heart, what does God do and how does he respond? It's interesting, this verse here, sadly has been abused by many who have a very high-centered view of man and a very low-centered view of God. And so I want to read this here, and then we're going to walk through what we do for passages like this. Verse 6, And the Lord saw, and the Lord, the Lord was sorry that He made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. If we're not careful, we can come to verses like this and build a whole theology on a phrase instead of taking the whole breadth of Scripture. 
So before we do that, though, I want to give you a, a, basically a 101, 101 of interpreting the Bible. When you interpret the Bible, you take very clear passages to help you understand more unclear passages. The question we have going on here now is, when God regretted that he had made man, is God sitting there and saying, I messed up, I should have done this, but I did this, oh, like one of us were cutting a board, and all of a sudden we cut it too short, and they haven't made board extenders yet. And so you're like, oh, I messed up. I just throw it on the scrap heap and go back. Is this what's going on here? Well, let's go back to what Scripture clearly teaches. And so you'll see in your, in your uh, outline there, you'll see some verses, but I'm just going to move through these rather quickly. So here's a fact, a biblical fact. God has already declared everything that will happen, and everything that happens is because God has declared it. I'll say it again. God has already declared everything that will happen, and everything that happens is because God has declared it. Isaiah 46.10. This is God speaking. He's declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient time things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. When did God declare it? He declared the end from the beginning. So in the beginning, He declared the end. If you're going to declare the end from the beginning, you must declare everything that happened in between. And literally, He says, I declare these from ancient times. And not only that, His counsel, His decisions that He has made shall stand... And he goes even further, and I will accomplish all my purposes. So if God set out to accomplish it, what does the Bible say will happen? It will happen. Not only that, another fact of Scripture, God does not change like humans change. We are incredibly fickle. At one moment we feel this way, at another moment we feel that way. If you've ever been around someone, just wait a couple of minutes, and they may be totally different of point on one thing to the other. We are incredibly fickle, but God is not. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is not fickle. He does not say, we're going to do it this way. Actually, I changed my mind. We're going to do it over this way, like we as human beings do. And not only that, another fact that is clear from Scripture is God is all-powerful. That means He has more power than anyone. Omnipotent is that word. All-powerful. And the fact of Scripture is God will and has the ability to, because He is all-powerful, the ability to protect His sheep, even protect His sheep from evil. Notice what the psalmist says in Psalm 27.1. The Lord is the light of my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And the answer to that question is... No one. And he goes on to say, The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? And the answer is, no one, because God not only has declared the beginning from the end, not only does He not change like we as human beings, but He is all-powerful over all things, so we can literally stand here and say, there is nothing that is going to come into my life that God has not ordained. But the problem is why we struggle with the rest of it is because we are so man-centered instead of God-centered that we like to put ourselves in the seat of the throne of this world and we like to be the ones to determine how God acts and what He does. And now sadly, because of sin, mankind likes to come to this passage and I'm going to give you an example of a theology which is a bad theology that sprung out from passages of Scripture like this. There's, there's two views on this main views. One is called the open view of God. This is the heresy view. But we need to make sure we understand this because it is prevalent in our day in society. So here's what happens. God gives man many options and then reacts to man's choices. 
Nothing is planned or decreed by God. So we have no prophecy. We have no biblical um, commands that, that are saying this will happen when it happens because God can't really do that because everything is open. Man has the ultimate and final authority about what happens. So God then is reduced to a reactor or just juggles things the best he can to make things the way he would like them to be. And he's just out there continually holding all these things in a juggle, if you would call it. And so at the end of the day, man holds the final trump card, his will. And God then is hoping that man would love the world he created. So if you take the open view, God creates the world in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and he just hopes that mankind will do the best thing that he can. And mankind rebels against God, and then God's like, great, now we have to come up with another plan, and the plan's going to be to redeem the world through Jesus, all right, because that wasn't the plan from the beginning. This is a reactionary plan, and we hope things are going out well because we get the line of Seth, and everything's going to go good, and now everything has fallen apart again, and so now we're just going to pick Noah, and we got to destroy everything else, and so God is literally up there in the heavens continually reacting. So man rebelled. God's upset with man. He's upset that man won't do what he wanted to do. God is continually upset because man has messed up his plans one time after another. And he finally is excited in verse 8 that he at least found somebody that likes him. And he's ready to start all over with him. I know I'm, I'm shortening the version of that, but literally it puts man in the driver's seat and God is no longer God. Because man holds, if man holds the final trump card, what is God then? He is not the God of the universe who creates all things, uphold all things by his power, man does. So then what is the biblical view? The biblical view, which I believe we will see out through all of Scripture, and we've already alluded to already, that before the foundation of the earth, God planned the beginning from the end. Nothing has, is, or will happen that God has not decreed to take place. God is not taken by surprise by anything. Nor does he act as we would say humanly that he regrets something. He goes, oh, I wish I hadn't done it that way. I wish I was wiser back then. I really messed this up. This is not God. This is not the God of the universe that the Bible boldly declares. Nor does he have the same concept of sorry that we say for something he has decreed. So what is happening here? When we read passages like this, by the way, this is not the only one. There's another one in Jonah where we say, God says, I'm going to do this. People repent, then God says, I'm going to do that. And so these are the two passages everybody likes to go to, and they build, as I would call it, that whole theology. We're going, no, wait a minute. There is far more to this than what is going on. So what is happening here is God is descending to speak in terms we understand. God, in a way, not in a negative way, but is condescending. God is leaning over and quietly speaks to us, because if he were to speak with his full voice, we would be destroyed. This is no different than when one of your kids comes up and says, explain this to me, and he bends over and speaks in language that a two-year-old can understand. This is God, in all of his infinite wisdom, speaking in ways we can understand. He speaks in language we can understand. That's a part of his grace and a part of his mercy that he communicates to us in ways we can, we can grasp, we can understand in our, own, in our own minds. Remember that the Holy Spirit inspired every word of Scripture. So where Scripture says God repented of something, that is true. It's absolutely true. But the Bible also says God does not change his mind. He is all-powerful, omniscient, sovereign. So what is happening here? 
What we have here is I believe the Holy Spirit is giving us the inspired word of God saying that God is incredibly displeased, so displeased that he is so vexed in his heart because of how evil man is and the response to his evil. This is a great displeasure upon God that God is seeing on mankind here. Remember, God is not an emotionless God. He does not sit up there with no emotion at all, but every emotion God has is perfect. And I want to give you a little example of how we as image bearers of God. Now remember, as image bearers of God, we are not God. We bear his image. Just like on the coin, we've already gone through this trick question. Who is on the coin? Uh, The quarter? No, come on. We've gone through this before. George Washington is not on the quarter. His image is on the quarter, all right? Like, we've gone through this, all right? You know, and so as we think through this, as image bearers of God, we are not God, we just bear His image. So we will reflect Him in certain ways. But we will not be exactly like Him, or then we would be God, all right? So when we go through this, I'll give you an example. For those of you who have children... If you've had children at all, the Bible is very clear that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Folly is another word of saying sin is bound up in the heart of a child. So what should not surprise you one day that your children do? Sin, all right? That shouldn't be like, can you believe that my child sinned? You knew it was going to happen. It's just literally you're biding time until it happens again, all right? And I'm sure one of your kids is doing a phenomenal job of it back in the Sunday school room right now. All right, you didn't have to say, when you're on your way back there, sin a little, all right? They're going to do it naturally, all right? This is what happens, okay? You know that, and you know that God has called you to discipline your child, to use discipline when they disobey. Yet, even when they disobey and you have to discipline them, you could, even though you know it's going to happen, what do you still feel as a parent? I really would not, this is not like I'm sitting here going, this is fun to do, like I get my kicks out of disciplining you. I mean, it's one of those where this is that little bit of, we call it the idea of regret, but what do you know? You know this is going to happen, you know you have to do it, but you're not taking joy in this in some type of sadistic joy. You are going, I would argue that we have not a sigh that God is saying, I can't believe this planned out, but saying is, what I have given you is far better than this, yet you and your evil, sinful heart, this is what you have chosen. Sin cannot be ignored by God. By God's very nature, he must deal with sin. This is not an act of revenge, but when God administers justice, it is altogetherly perfect justice. So instead of being shocked that God would destroy all mankind, we must understand the depth of our own rebellion against God. Because God is under no obligation to save anyone, let alone those who rebel against his own heart and his own plan. So this is pretty dark, isn't it? And we get to verse 9. I mean, God is literally saying, I'm going to wipe you all out. But what do we see in verse 8, though? This is, again, remember we walked through this. In this darkness, you should hear the sound of the darkness around you. But remember we talked about right in that, like the Lord of the Rings there, the Shire music that gets played in the darkest dark. What you hear here is that beautiful music that's getting played. But what? When all seems lost, 
When all seems like there is going to be no light shining through, a beacon of light shines through, and notice the word of it, because this is very, 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 very important. That verse number, verse number eight, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is where we see grace on Noah. This is an incredibly powerful phrase. This, this word favor also literally means the idea of grace. Favor or grace can be used here. And what do we know about grace? Grace is unmerited favor. This is favor that the person did not merit. This same phrase here, found favor, is when a person would go before a king. And if the king decided that he was in favor of the person, literally the king would say, yes, you can speak. If the king chose not to show favor on the person, they couldn't speak. Sometimes they would literally be taken out and killed because the king just chose not to show favor on that person. This word favor here is the same thing when Abraham is standing before God and he says, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Found in Genesis 18.3. What is beautiful here is God's favor is going to rest on Noah. And notice it's interesting how it's laid out. Verse 8 comes before verse 9. And you go, wow, Tim, that's, that's impressive. Yes, 8 comes before 9, but what is 9 all about? Nine, notice what it says. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. What came first? The favor of God. And then now we see, because God's favor rested on Noah, we see the result of that grace or favor in Noah's life. It reminds us of a verse in Titus 3, 5 through 7. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. We're going to find out real quick. Is Noah going to be the Messiah that's going to redeem us? No. You read a couple of chapters on what does Noah do? He sins like everyone else. That is why Noah is not the Redeemer. And what is Noah going to point us to? Not him, but someone else. And we're ramping up the season to one day we will see that come literally in the, 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 the birth of Jesus Christ at Christmas, who the Redeemer really is. So we have to ask ourselves, when we think through all of these things that are going on here, what's in front of us? Romans 5.20 says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What we have here is the depravity of man on full display to the point where God has said, I will literally blot them all out from the face of the earth. But Noah founds favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we see the beauty here. That the promise that God made back in Genesis 3.15 when He said to Eve, out of you will come a Redeemer. One that will not only destroy Satan's head, but one that will be bruised, his, his heel will be bruised as well. And we all look to that. And if God were to wipe out all of humanity, what would we know about the promise of God that He made in 3.15? God had lied. But God cannot lie. So that means we will always have a faithful remnant. That, oh, that we may, though, live in a world where evil abounds, what do we know about God? He will keep His remnant. 
This is one of the beautiful things we see. We see it in, in Kings and we see it again in Romans 11. Remember where um, Elijah was on the run. And he's on the run from going from one place to another. And he literally sits under a tree and he cries out and he says, Lord, they have killed everybody. All their prophets. Everybody is killed. Just, I'm the only one left. Everything. And he's singing doom and gloom. If he was probably singing the song, no one knows the sorrow I've seen. And he's just there in the baritone singing about how evil everything is. And what does God say to him? He says, I've reserved for myself several thousand men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And the passage goes on, and he goes, so get up, anoint this guy as king, anoint this guy over here, go to Elisha, give him your cloak, because we're moving on here. You may think things are bad, but what is God saying? I am in control of it all, working all things together for my glory, because how do we know that? What does Isaiah 46.10 says? He has declared the beginning from the end, and all of his purpose will stand. This is the promise, this is the hope that we hold in moments like this. Because if anyone were to look at the world for any moment in time, you would sit there and say, it seems that evil is winning and good is losing. But what is God saying? What does He say? That in the end, the righteous and just God will come and do what is righteous and just, and He will win. Because He has said He will, and He has promised that death and sin will be destroyed. So do we hold that in moments like this? Because the Bible clearly tells us, like in the days of Noah, it will be when Christ returns. And as we see the days even approaching more, the stronger call should be as we hold to the promises of God and continually to point others around us to Him. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, thank You that it is by Your grace and Your mercy that we stand. Thank you that you chose to show favor on us, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. None of us deserve it. May we run to you, the God of grace, and find grace and help in our time of need. Thank you now. Help us, we pray. In your son's name, amen. If you could stand with us as we close.